Are you confused about real food and what's healthy and good for the planet? Do you need the facts about local, organic, and sustainable food? Well, get ready to change the way you eat. Get ready for The Appropriate Omnivore with Aaron Zober. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Appropriate Omnivore with Aaron Zober. Today, I interview my final speaker for the upcoming Wise Traditions Conference in Atlanta. I'll be talking to Joanne Broman, author of the book Keeping a Family Cow. Plus, desserts will tell you how to live appropriately in the upcoming week. But first, let's go to the appetizers and find out what's happening in the world of real food. Senator John Tester from Montana has been successful in removing the Monsanto Protection Act from a bill that ended the government shutdown. The bill was created to stop federal courts from GMO crops being planted. Tester said the bill prevented the USDA from dealing with valid GMO concerns. It's great to see a senator taking a stand against Monsanto, as well as the Congress that voted for its removal as well and stood up for accountability and transparency. But not all GMO fighting news is good. Kauai Mayor Bernard Carvalho Jr. voted against Kauai's GMO bill, which would have disclosed pesticide usage, required 500-foot buffer zones near medical facilities, schools, and home, and conduct a study on pesticides in terms of how they relate to health and environmental issues. Mayor Carvalho said he agreed with the intent of the bill, but he had to veto it because it was legally flawed. I'm not sure what he means by this. All I can say is I'm extremely disappointed in his decision, and I don't see how this is flawed in any way. And the last piece of GMO news is Dr. Bronner's, a natural hygiene products company, which has been a major donor to both Washington State's I-522 and last year's Prop 37 in California, has changed the label on their soap bars to include a Yes on I-522 logo on it. A constant criticism of mandatory GMO labeling is that it would drive up the cost of food products. Dr. Bronner's has proved that this is totally bogus, as their soaps haven't increased in price since changing their label, as well as the fact that companies change their labels all the time. Next, the Center for Food Safety and the Animal League Defense Fund are suing the FDA, requesting them to release information documenting, analyzing, and otherwise discussing the physiological, psychological, and or behavioral aspects of ractopamine, which is used in 80% of pig and cattle farming in the U.S. Ractopamine is a growth additive drug that has been found to elevate heart rates and heart pounding sensations in humans. Studies have also found that the drug causes rapid heartbeat, birth defects, and enlarged hearts in animals, as well as making the pigs too weak to walk and their hooves to fall off. Here's more information on everyday farming that the FDA is hiding from us and why I like to visit farms myself to learn what they're actually giving the animals. A Texas oyster reef that was once almost 500 acres is being restored. During the last century, we've been losing oyster reefs due to overfishing and other causes. Nearly 50% of the reefs in the Gulf and 85% of them globally have disappeared. The goal behind this project is to replicate a real reef as closely as possible and get the eventual growth of it to be vertical so the process would be natural occurring. Being in California, I know about oyster farms taking a hit with the closing of Drake Bay Oyster Farms, and I'm pleased to see new natural farms being created. And now for the main course. In just a few days, 
The Weston A. Price Foundation will be holding its annual International Wise Traditions Conference, which this year is in Atlanta. Over the past two months, I've interviewed all types of guests that will be speaking at the conference in all areas, from nutrition to agriculture to cooking to research. Another topic that's covered in the presentations at the conference is homesteading. Homesteading is a growing trend where people grow and preserve their own food, make their own cleaning products, live off the grid, and many other aspects of living a self-sufficient lifestyle. When it comes to food, most of us are familiar with the idea of having a garden where you grow crops yourself. And then we're seeing more people that are having backyard chickens so people can get their own eggs and possibly a chicken to eat at the end. But it can go even further than that. Many people have their own cow. Here to talk with me about that is Joanne Groman, author of Keeping a Family Cow and leading a presentation at the conference entitled, When You Have the Cow, You Have It All. Joanne, it's really an honor to have you here on the program. Well, thank you. I'm awfully pleased to be here. What you do, what you've written about, and what you promote is totally in theme with the show. I think having your own cow may be one of the best ways to be an appropriate omnivore. Well, having your own cow it does uh, liberate you from many of the issues that uh, concern people who are interested in self-sufficiency and resiliency. She, uh, she, she, she works hard for you all the time. And I know that you've kept cows all your life. How did you first get involved with raising cows? <laughs> well, that was uh, my first husband was a uh, research fellow with uh, a group that was studying cows, and that kind of got me going. Later on, with my second husband, we uh, operated 120 cow Jersey dairy in England, and that gave me quite an insight into the fascination and pitfalls of a large dairy, which I wouldn't wish on anybody now. We moved our family back to uh, Maine after a few years, and there was a little farm where I still live in Maine, <clears throat> and I began milking my own personal cow. I had had a cow from time to time before that, but this was the uh, beginning of total immersion in the cow economy. What else would you like to know about the cow? Well, I'd like to know, how long now have you been raising a cow? Because I know that you've had lots of different cows, and this has been a lifelong experience. How many years has this been that you've been raising cows? Oh, well, um, I started with my first cow in about 1975. And I've had one. I haven't been without one since. And currently, how many cows do you have? Just one. Just one cow, and her name is Fern. She's expecting her second calf this coming weekend. In fact, she'll probably have it just when I'm at the conference. Uh-oh. <laughs> I think that's kind of a nice birthday to have. You were born on a Weston Price conference. I couldn't think of a better birthday. <laughs> well, we always hope it's a perfect birthday, and it usually is. She's a lovely little Jersey, and uh, she lives here on my farm on on the grass that we grow on our pasture. Has a calf every year for us. And what do you think makes the cow the perfect animal to have in your backyard? Well, I suppose it depends partly on your goals in life. But if one of your goals is to have the world's most perfect food, why, 
your uh, cow will provide it. And if your goal is uh, something related to self-sufficiency and resiliency in the face of uh, whatever concerns your family is most uh, focused on, the cow has a remarkable ability to make uh, make it on grass alone. She can convert grass, which is indigestible to people. They would starve if they had to live on it into milk, which is arguably the most perfect food there is. She does this because of the the, uh, captive microorganisms she has in her womb and the large organ that makes cows look so big and round. This is, uh, the rumen is a fermentation vat, and it's full of friendly microbes that are able to break down cellulose, which is the principal thing in grass, and it's actually the largest carbohydrate source in the world, but it's completely indigestible to humans. It's only digestible by bacteria, and the bacteria in her rumen break this down and, and uh, form complete protein out of it through the whole uh, spectrum of essential amino acids. And she's able to do this for you right on your own farm without importing anything from <laughs> anywhere. And I call that cow magic. I think it is magic. It's a pretty amazing thing what the cow can do. You talked a little earlier about having a Jersey cow. Do you think Jersey cows are the best breed of cows to raise? I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't like to say which was the best breed. Various parts of the country and parts of the world have more of one kind than another. The uh, advantage to one of the big advantages to a Jersey is that they're, they tend to be available, and they've been a popular cow for domestic purposes for several hundred years, and Consequently, they've been bred for not just production, but also cow temperament, which is important, and cow beauty, which is also important. So people like them for those reasons. They do produce quite a lot of milk compared to the amount of food that they eat. So, but many people like the Dexter or the Milky Shorthorn or the Guernsey here. Some people, the large dairies use the Holstein, but she doesn't make quite such a good family cow for various reasons. <laughs> the milk is not as rich and considerable volume. So that makes the that makes my choice for the Jersey easy, but other people have other favorite cows, and they're all wonderful. In fact, you can even milk a a beef cow, if that's all you can find. <laughs> it sounds like part of the cow that you should choose is one that's local, keeping with the whole local movement. Well, the thing is that you can usually find it a lot cheaper if you buy whatever is available locally rather than shipping it from a long distance away with a sight unseen. You can 
kind of go with what's available in your area, at least to, for your first cow, and find out whether you like that breed or not. And I would say buying a local cow also keeps it sustainable just as far as the cow is not traveling a long distance. Well, I think so, too, although I do know that some cows travel quite successfully. In some parts of the country, it's rather hard to find a dairy cow. That's true, and there's a lot of arguments of having one that travel is better than not having a dairy cow at all. Oh, well, yes. You need to get your cow from somewhere. You need to get the milk. <laughs> also, what is your thought on raising heritage breeds versus hybrid breeds of cows? Well, the other breeds are not hybrid breeds, but they've been bred specifically for, usually for larger size and larger volume, and uh, in some cases they're, be, they're somewhat fragile. The heritage breeds are uh, mostly pretty wonderful, but they, they're they usually very expensive. And uh, for most of us, cost is a big factor. Uh, one of the heritage breeds that people particularly like is the mini Jersey, which uh, she's very sweet and has the advantage of being pretty small. <laughs> Still gives quite a bit of milk, but whether you want to pay the extra two or three times as much for one, why, has to be a personal decision. I think it's important that people are keeping the heritage breeds alive, though, because that means it maintains the, the uh, genetics. And you're raising your cow in Maine, which I've been to Maine. It's a very lovely area, and there there's a lot of open land for people to raise cows, but can someone that, say, lives in more of a metropolitan suburban area like me where I live in Los Angeles, would we be able to have backyard cows too? Well, everybody used to a couple hundred years ago, no matter what. <laughs> it's not impossible to keep a cow in a quite a small area. Uh, in fact, uh, I'd say the majority of, of uh, suburban neighborhoods have a lawn that's big enough to keep a cow Mm -hmm. And so, uh, what prevents people from keeping a cow there is uh, uh, various rules and regulations in the particular area. Cows perfectly happy to live anywhere that they can find grass. I could see that the zoning issues could be a problem. Yes, it might be that they're going to be relaxed in some places because I think the interest in small holdings is really is growing for a lot of pretty good reasons. I know with backyard chickens, which is becoming a big thing, like I explained in my intro, that some of these farmers that sell backyard chickens to people, they'll actually work with the city zoning committee to get people to have chickens in their backyard. Can farmers do a similar thing, getting people to have cows in their backyard by negotiating some stuff with zoning committees? Uh, you say, would, would uh, farmers assist with this negotiation? Right. Well, it seems possible that they might, although uh, uh, I'm not familiar with it ever happening. And in some places, I know people have struggled pretty hard to get variances to keep a cow. Uh, but I think as uh, pressure builds, why people's attitude will change. There's the concerns that people, some might have against keeping a cow, that there would be flies and that sort of thing, are, are really manageable factors, and I think that uh, 
so much to be said for depending on an animal that you don't have to import her feed from a great distance away. I mean, pretty much always have grass. Of course, here in Maine, we only have it half of the year. We have to plan ahead with hay. Well, there's an advantage that we have in California is that we have grass year-round. Yes, that's one of the many wonderful things about California. I love California. I lived there for 25 years. Where in California did you live? Up in Davis and also in Marin County. Oh, yeah. That's a very nice area. I went to school up in Davis. UC Davis? Yes. Yeah, that's a great school, and I know that in UC Davis, they're very big on sustainability and environment, because I've known some people that have gone there. I think extremely forward-thinking. I think so, too, and also they have probably the premier viticulture school there. Oh, my goodness, yes. <laughs> I'm sure it's the best. In terms of getting a cow for your backyard, how much area do you need to raise the cow? Well, you can use what you have, but she does need to have some exercise, and if she doesn't have about an acre of grass, why, you're going to have to bring hay, buy hay and bring it to her. It isn't a question of how much she must have. It's a question of whether you can meet her needs for for exercise and feed on the size of property that you have. So you don't, you don't need to feel entirely constrained by any particular rule. I know for a lot of the farms where they raise the pastured cows, they do a crop rotation. Can you do a type of crop rotation in your backyard with the cow? Well, yes. They, what they do is, uh, what many people do with great success, actually, is divide an acre property into four small paddocks and uh, actually irrigate them successively with a sprinkler or something, or in a good rainy area, you don't even have to irrigate, and keep moving the cow from one to another as it regrows. This is uh, perfectly feasible, and many people do this. And you find also with having a backyard cow that it also helps for you to grow a lot of great crops, fruits, and vegetables. Yes, your cow is the source of um, her other great product is cow manure. <laughs> if you pile this up and compost it, you've got a product that is extremely valuable. And uh, you can sprinkle that around on your pastures or you can grow whatever crops you choose. If you uh, have compost, why? You better jump back. Those crops are going to look pretty good. Do you use a lot of compost to grow your own crops? Oh, yes. Yes, we grow a big garden every year. And I imagine that that just has to be such a great feeling of eating these crops and thinking that it was all fertilized by the cows. To me, there's just there's something magical about that experience. Like when I go to a oh, farmer's yeah. market and I go to one of these farmers that they sell what they call everything under the sun and thinking, you know, these strawberries were fertilized by their ruminants and their animals. Well, you have this complete system on your small farm if you want to do it that way. And, and you're, uh, you have your vegetable crops, which can feed both people and other animals. If you have chickens or sometimes people want to have a pig, why uh, you can actually grow everything based on the cow manure. And I think it's important to add that chickens and pigs, in order to thrive, must have complete protein. 
they can't make it on grass alone the way or vegetables alone the way a cow can. So if you have a cow, well, you'll probably have more milk than you want anyway, and and uh, need to make some butter, and then you'll have skim milk or buttermilk. And this will, if you feed this to your chickens and your pigs, will satisfy their requirement for for complete protein, so that you can have a complete system on your farm. Yes, and I know also that it's important that you feed the chickens or the pigs raw milk and not pasteurized milk, which you can get the raw milk when you have it in your own yard. Well, if you have pasteurized milk and that's all you've got, I would say don't throw it away. It's still a valuable product, but I do endorse raw milk whenever possible. I do too, and I guess just I'm not sure about feeding it to animals like pigs or chickens, um, but you, that is a good point that you bring up about they need to have some source of protein because pigs and chickens, they are omnivores, whereas cows, they're herbivores. So that the pigs and chickens, if you have enough like critters and worms around your yard, then that's sufficient. But otherwise, you do need some type of protein. And I know that uh, can sometimes uh, involve feeding the pigs or the chickens things like legumes. Yes, you can feed the pigs and chickens legumes or anything in the plant line that's small enough for them to eat, <laughs> chopped up well enough. But as I did mention, they've got to have some animal protein or complete protein in their diet in order to thrive. And in addition to having cows and also pigs and chickens, you think also raising something such as, say, a goat or a sheep is another great animal to have for your own personal uses? Well, if you have a cow, you probably won't need a goat because um, your cow will produce plenty of milk. And one of the reasons for having a cow as opposed to goats, nice though goats are, lovely animals, they're a great deal harder to confine and they tend to be noisy. Uh, as for sheep, I almost always have a few sheep running with my cow. And uh, they're very easy to keep, and their requirements are similar to a cow in that they thrive on grass. They don't really compete with your cow because uh, there's room for them both on the pasture. They graze a little differently. And I think it's excellent to have a collection of different animals, whatever you feel like having. I think the more the better. Yeah. It's so fun to go out there and look at them. <laughs> And then after one gets these animals for the backyard, like specifically, say, a cow, how much does one need to learn then in the process of milking a cow and raising it? How much do you need to learn? Right. Well, I think it's a lot like having children. You can never finish learning. Mm -hmm. There's always more to learn. <laughs> but you can always dive right in and it probably work out for you. Is the milking process the biggest thing to learn? No, I don't think so. It, it takes a certain amount of physical stamina and strength to milk a cow. It's uh, uh, a lot of small women and, and children soon learn to be good milkers. And um, But you have to build up some strength in your hands before it gets, gets to be easy and probably be rubbing a lot of hand cream into your hands for a few days while your strength builds up. But the actual skill of milking a cow isn't isn't very complicated. People 
been doing it for a long time with no trouble. <laughs> but there's a lot to learn about keeping your cow in good health that uh, I know is hard for some people to keep track of giving it enough to eat and giving it plenty of clean water all the time. I don't find it possible to keep my cow on grass alone, even though that is now the very strong trend. And that's because in the case of a dairy cow, her caloric requirements are pretty high, and you have to have pretty good quality grass or hay in order to meet these. And she'll lots of times just keep on giving milk and getting thinner and thinner if you don't give her plenty of calories. So despite the fact that I stand up for grass and grass alone where possible, my cow virtually always has at least a little bit of grain, otherwise you get too thin. I've heard that from other people that own cows, both farmers and people with family cows, but I think the key to that would be mainly making sure that the grains are all non-GMO to keep it healthy. That's right. My uh, uh, grain provider brings his down from Canada, actually, so that he can uh, avoid GM feeds. Right, and I've heard that, yeah, it's just little grain, as long as it's non-GMO, that it's not going to hurt the cow, and they'll need to, and they'll remain relatively healthy. Well, my cow seems looks pretty darn healthy. So there you go. <laughs> also, what is your thoughts on milking the cow by hand versus milking it with a machine? Well, this is kind of a personal decision. A machine is rather expensive unless you can kind of put one together out of spare parts, which some clever people manage to do. But you don't get much change from $900 setting yourself up with a machine. But it enables you to find more people willing to milk the cow. And you yourself can do the actual milking in about seven minutes whereas milking her by hand is going to take more like 40 minutes usually or half an hour. But milking the cow is something that many people enjoy doing. It's a quiet, peaceful, contemplative time for both of you. And you can kind of get out of the house and commune with your cow. And there's nothing intrinsically superior about either method except for one thing, and that is that the incidence of mastitis is a great deal less in hand milking than it is with a machine. And explain what that is specifically. Well, it's an inflammation of the udder that uh, comes from uh, overstressing the udder with uh, leaving the machine on too long, or it may be back drafts of milk into the pee in case the vacuum adjustment isn't quite right. And I think um, many of the reasons why they get more frequent bouts of mastitis with a machine than with their hand by hand milking are not entirely understood, but it certainly is the case, and it's the bane of commercial dairies. The main reason that they receive antibiotics in commercial dairies has nothing to do with trying to make them give more milk or anything like that. It's just to treat this illness, which is bacterial infection. There's an argument for hand milking. Do you think hand milking is more humane? No, I don't. I don't think, see that argument at all. If you use your machine properly and mm -hmm. and don't wander away and do something else and leave it on or get the milk out, actually many cows prefer a machine to hand milking. 
We'll talk more with Joanne Grillman about raising a family cow and the advantages of milk for everyone, why you should be having it. But first, a word from our sponsors. To Your Health Sprouted Flour Company offers organic sprouted grains and flours for all your baking needs. We have more than 34 sprouted products, hundreds of recipes, and are always available to answer your flour and baking questions. Whether you're making sourdough breads, French baguettes, birthday cakes, granola, or pancakes, let us be your sprouted grain and flour source. Certified organic and kosher, featuring 20 gluten-free sprouted products. And for the month of July, you get free shipping on orders of 15 pounds or more. Go to the website, organicsproutedflour.net, or call toll-free at 877-401-6837 to start shopping. What is a healthy diet? Conflicting information is thrown at us daily. Help chart your course to wellness with a steady guide, the Weston A. Price Foundation. Our nutrition and health information is helping many families recover from degenerative disease and nutrient deficiencies. Join for only $40 a year and receive our quarterly journal. Visit our website, westonaprice.org, for more details. Olea Estates Olive Oil has been produced by the Cronus family on a small estate in Sparta, Greece since 1856. The olives are all certified organic and hand-picked. The oil is cold-pressed within 30 minutes and is extra virgin with an acidity of 0.24. I use Alea for all my olive oil needs, cooking, baking, salad dressing, hummus, and much more. Olea is distributed in the U.S. by Carl Berger. All products can be ordered on the website oleastates.com or by contacting Carl by email k-a-r-l at oleastates.com. You're listening to The Appropriate Omnivore with Aaron Zober. I'm interviewing Joanne Groman. She's the author of Keeping a Family Cow and speaking at the Wise Traditions Conference coming up in a few days. This is my final guest of the Wise Traditions Speaker Series. We've been talking about the advantages of having your own cow, how you can get your own milk, and also you can get your best source of fertilizer for other crops to grow in your garden by having a backyard cow. And we've talked about how you can go about getting a cow. Now, Joanne, I would like to get into talking about the health advantages of raw milk. Well, there's just uh, so many of them, I don't hardly know where to start. But uh, one thing that uh, concerns a lot of people is knowing what the cow ate. And uh, there's certainly health advantages to being able to have milk that you know exactly what went into the cow. And uh, many people prefer to avoid soy products, and you can readily keep them away from your cow if you feed her yourself. And many people prefer to avoid um, genetically modified feeds, which is both corn and soy. And uh, you can find ways to feed your cow that provide her a fully adequate diet without using any of the products to which some you may have ideological objections or have someone in the family that's sensitive to these things. Lots of times people who have been unable to drink milk most of their lives find they can immediately uh, enjoy raw milk that doesn't upset them in any way and they drink quite a bit. There's... Uh, in the case of lactose intolerance, you really don't see it in raw milk drinkers. 
I've known a number of people that are lactose intolerant and can drink raw milk. And the explanation that I had heard, Mark McAfee was the one that I learned this from, is that the whole lactose intolerant, many people aren't actually lactose intolerant. About, I think, 92% maybe of those people are actually just pasteurization intolerant. Well, that's probably true because pasteurization does uh, introduce uh, some other factors into the mix. But I'll give you another word about lactose intolerance. The thing that you're really saying is that you're not producing the enzyme lactase, which is necessary in order to just lactose, milk sugar. And uh, we're all born producing lactase, the enzyme, but uh, at the time of weaning, it, the production of it dwindles out in many people. However, in the, if they drink uh, raw milk, the function of the enzyme is taken over by benign lactobacilli that uh, colonize milk as soon as it leaves the udder. It's uh, beginning of fermentation, and the bacteria produce the lactase for you so that in the case of raw milk, it's not that it's gone sour or anything. It's just that it's immediately colonized with benign bacteria, which produce the lactase for you so you don't have that burden on your own gut. But in the case of the point you made about pasteurization, when you're buying pasteurized milk, you're not just buying milk. You're also buying uh, whatever else went into the milk along <laughs> with the milk, what they rinse the the machines with on the commercial dairies, the, the various uh, cleaning products find their way into the milk. And one of the principal ones of these is actually iodine, which is used as a teat dip. So that there's, and also you're consuming the mixture of milk from hundreds and hundreds of cows, and who knows what they had to eat. So that when you're buying pasteurized milk, it isn't just that it's heat treated; it's also that it contains other things besides milk. Some of which won't do you any harm, but some may not be so good. I would buy pasteurized milk if I had no other source of milk, but I certainly would like people to consider raw milk when they possibly get it, particularly if you want to get your own cow. Yeah, if you have your own cow, you have no reason to pasteurize the milk then. Well, I don't see why you would. I don't see why you would either, and really that's the whole reason that pasteurization started was because people moved away from having their own family farm, their own family cow, and also moved away from raising cows in the country to these industrialized factories in the city where cows were. Yes, that's true. And also, as a practical matter, by the time you mix together the milk from a whole bunch of cows and transport it some distance or other, you really uh, cannot get it to the customer before it goes sour. So pasteurization becomes a, a, a necessity in order to provide milk that's not sour, irrespective of whatever else went before. So there's really no way to get raw milk easily without a very local sort of cow. 
And this whole pasteurization is really pretty new. It's really only been done in the past 100 years when it started, and then it wasn't even until past maybe the past 50 or 60 years that like all milk then started to become pasteurized. So in addition to seeing it new, I just I don't see really pasteurized milk as real because cows don't produce pasteurized milk. Well, I guess that's one way to put it. <laughs> There's so many things in raw milk that that really um, are destroyed by pasteurization that make it a better choice in most every way. Do you think some people are feared by just the name raw milk? Well, I'm sorry to say that uh, I wish they had gotten more in the habit of calling it untreated milk because to many people's mind, raw milk sounds like there might be something wrong with it. So maybe we should try hard to call it untreated milk. I've heard a lot of different names proposed to it because I think people do have a general fear of eating things raw these days. And now there's starting to be a movement more to go back to raw foods. Another name I've heard for it is fresh milk, or I think another name we could call it is artisan milk, because that's really what it is. Okay, let's call it artisan milk. (laughs) That sounds good to me. I think so, because the process that you explained, you show how raw milk, this is really artisan-created milk that we have versus the mass-produced milk in the factory farms. Well, yes, the factory farms, I think, are a blight on the country. It doesn't make the cows happy. And also with pasteurized milk, I know in addition to the whole lactose intolerance, I know that also a lot of these problems that are blamed on milk these days, everything from like acne to arthritis and allergies, all these other illnesses, they're only connected with pasteurized milk and people that drink raw milk, they don't have any of these problems. Well, they certainly don't have them as much. I would say that as not 100% that you're going to avoid acne or arthritis, but they are certainly not as uh, likely to occur. I think what happens with raw milk is that it's so well accepted by the human body, it it undergirds health in so many ways and supports better diet in so many ways that, that it isn't just the raw milk that's making everything better. It's it's the whole family diet and a whole collection of different ways, including the things you probably decide to grow for yourself. So before long, why everybody in the household seems healthier, and and you may not be able to pinpoint exactly why it is, but there you are with shiny shiny rosy cheeks and better teeth and. Many people report right away they don't have flu every winter like they used to. And I think it's also, although people can have raw milk and raise the cow very poorly, most people I know that raise cows and produce raw milk for it, they are a lot more careful than these big ag farmers and these these big dairies that pasteurize it. So I think that just the fact that these cows made for raw milk, they're the cleanest dairies of any cleanest conditions of any cows, that that's a lot of what makes it healthy and people don't have these problems. I think so. Yes, I would agree with that. That, that I mean, you can find unhappy exceptions to anything. I mean, some people are pretty uh, poor about the way they keep their dog, but uh, most of the people that I know that have a cow, 
go to a whole lot of trouble to have a happy, healthy, clean cow that was fresh air and places to walk around and a lot of stroking and petting. And She's a happy cow. And in addition to these criticisms of illnesses that milk causes and disorders that milk causes, I know you're going to also talk in your presentation about these myths that vegans try to spread about milk, which I really love because that's a lot of what I do is debunking all these arguments vegans make against drinking cow's milk. So can you explain a little as to what you're going to talk about in your presentation in regards to debunking some of the myths that vegans talk about, like about milk producing more uh, CO2 than cars and milk putting methane into the atmosphere? Yes, I am going to talk about that because there's no truth in it. My goodness, when people have had cows and valued them for thousands of years, and the, the atmosphere it was just great until we began dumping fossil fuel into it, uh, I would have to take those allegations one at a time and dismantle them for you. <laughs> I don't know if you have time, but uh, the idea that... Uh, uh, Cows can need to contribute in any way. Cows don't contribute in any way to the CO2 burden. There's no way they can. Well, the only cows I think that might contribute to the CO2 burden are the ones from factory farms because the food is taken in to feed to the cows. Yeah, but that isn't the cows. That's a human decision of to feed them in a way that that uh, supports the whole system of growing vast crops of soy and corn in one place and hauling it to the cows in another place and and if it produces a lot more CO2 in the air in the process of this, it's pretty kind of unreasonable to blame it on the cows. That's a good point. Cows don't cause it, humans do. Yes, and in the case of methane, that's uh, another issue. Uh, when it was discovered that uh, the fermentation process in the rumen produces methane as a byproduct, which is a gas. A lot of people assume that this uh, methane exited the cow by the rear exit, which it does not. But this idea was so entertaining to so many writers and that they kind of took it up and had their fun with it and blamed cows for producing a lot of methane, which they only produce a little bit, and they belt it out by going every so often while they're eating. And as I mentioned before, they've been doing this since, ever since cows appeared on the face of the earth without messing things up atmospherically and all the buffaloes and all the sheep and all the other herbivores are doing the same thing. So that methane issue is a non-starter. And there are also some specious arguments against milk. What are some of those that you hear? Well, the one that I find particularly specious <laughs> is the idea that people weren't meant to drink milk. This is a, a kind of a human idea that isn't uh, doesn't impress the other members of the animal kingdom. All the animals that I know of, if they're given an opportunity, will drink milk. They just don't know how to milk a cow. Exactly. The other animals, they don't exactly have the hands and the thumbs to milk a cow, but... If you read books such as like Pottinger's Cats, he talks about how these cats thrive when he gave them raw milk. Oh, yes. Uh, they, uh, my cats always wait in line for it. Uh, 
they often won't even drink pasteurized milk frequently. They just won't if they, you know, even if you put it down for them. And another argument that I hear against milk is the whole thing that you're taking milk away from the baby calves. But what people don't understand is cows are domesticated animal, and they make more milk than just their baby calves need. They make enough milk for both humans and for their own children. Absolutely. Every cow I know would have enough milk for four calves if she had them. <laughs> exactly. Plus, there's a time when their calves don't need the milk anymore, and we need to do something with the milk. So, you know, giving it to us, it gives us lots of great nutrients. Well, as long as you feed your cow adequately, and, she'll keep, and you keep milking her regularly, she will keep on producing milk. It's just that simple. And you're not taking it away from the calf in any way. Another common myth people try to say is we've only been drinking milk for 10,000 years. Do you think that's at all true? Absolutely not. Some of the oldest uh, uh, archaeological artifacts, I heard read about one of them that was unearthed somewhere in a cave in China that was 30,000 years old, a little clay saucer. Sometime they analyzed it and it had, had milk in it. <laughs> Everywhere that people have had animals, they've always used the milk. People have been keeping animals for a very long time. Have we been using cows for milk for way more than 10,000 years? Oh, yes. Uh, cows have always been a very popular animal for milk production. But that isn't the only animal that's been used. Uh, sheep, goats, horses, camels, you name it. If if it's got enough milk to milk out, why people have been using it? There are not too many places in the milk in the world where people haven't kept animals and they they uh, use the milk consistently. Although I don't think that anybody ever figured out how to milk a buffalo. Oh, really? Not that I can. Well, I mean, the American bison. The Asian buffalo, of course, is a major milk source. Oh, is that the kind that buffalo mozzarella comes from? I believe it is. Oh, okay, because yeah, when I hear of milking a buffalo, that's immediately what I think of. But I know that there's different types. Well, you're more accurate. Okay. And a more recent thing with milk is the research on A2 milk. What do you think of A2 milk, and do you think it has advantages over A1 milk? Yes, I do. I think that the argument for A2 milk is pretty powerful. It's uh, it's available in markets anywhere in New Zealand and Australia and also in Great Britain. And many people who formerly were not able to milk and digest milk readily at all are able to digest A2 milk with no problem at all. It's not the same as lactose intolerance. It's a protein issue having to do with the casein in milk. Does it have less casein in the A2 milk? No, it has the casein, uh, the amino acids that make up the casein uh, are in the order that they are meant to be, shall we say. In A1 milk, the casein chain, amino acid chain, has been altered by a mutation so that the amino acids fall into a different order, which uh, uh, breaks up in the digestive process and forms a 
a special short protein chain called a peptide, and uh, this one is called case of morphine 7. It, it actually is an opioid. Do you need to have a cow to produce A2 milk? How do you go about getting A2 milk from a cow? Well, you have to you have to find a cow that that is uh, you know, homozygous for A2, and uh, this is done by genetic testing. You can send away to testing labs and get the cow your cow identified as an A1, A2, or both. Some of them are heterozygous, produce both kinds. You can't tell the difference in the milk, and you can't tell by the color of the cow. Although the majority of A1 cows are Holstein, and the majority of uh, Guernsey cows are A2, but it's not sufficiently uh, differentiated because they've been in a breeding for quite a long time. So you, if you want to be certain, you have to get the milk tested, I mean the, the genetic testing, which involves sending in some hair follicles to a lab in Davis. I know another thing with casein is some people can digest the casein better in other types of dairy, such as a goat dairy or sheep dairy. Do you think that's true? Well, if they say it is, it probably is. There's difference in one food from another, but usually the difference is, is in the uh, health of the digestion of the person in question. and and. Uh, there's certainly going to be exceptions, but in general, when people get raw milk, they find it pretty digestible. I think also a lot of these people that say they can't digest milk, a lot of times I think, unless it's like an allergy, it's something that's not permanent, and with switching your diet to a proper nutrition, you can reverse your intolerance of things such as lactose. Absolutely. Uh, allergies are not necessarily forever. <laughs> I agree. So I don't totally disagree with some of these lifestyles or diets that say not to do dairy, but I think that they should be seen more as a temporary thing to reverse it. And I think when you do have optimal health, I think it's a great idea to try incorporating dairy into it then. Well, when you read the reasons for those who advise uh, avoiding dairy, they tend to include a whole lot of reasons that really don't hold up, including the ones about People weren't meant to drink milk, and that the cows might have been eating something you didn't want. And uh, it's almost as though they decided the, that you shouldn't have milk, and then began thinking up reasons for it. That seems like it. And to me, I just I think that everything that we've been doing, as you've explained, has been way more than 10,000 years, and there may be some problems. But I think that any type of food, we really need to learn how to. Uh, work with and look at its good properties. Well, that sounds perfectly, <laughs> very reasonable. <laughs> I think we're, uh, from the first point that you made at the beginning of the interview, if we're interested in local food, let's find out ways to make the local food into, into food that everybody can appreciate and, and profit from health-wise and every other way. It's usually not necessary to, to put together an exotic diet in order to be healthy. I don't think so. I think we can get a lot of great foods from local. I think the one thing by living local, though, is that we do have to eat a lot of these foods, which some people say 
are forbidden, whether, say, it's milk or it's meat or it's grains, I think that we need to look at what ones of these come local and try to eat the best of all these types of foods. Oh, well, yes. Let's, let's all try to figure out ways to eat more locally because something might happen that will prevent our bringing food from great distances and it would be good if we knew how to make better use of what's locally available and what you can produce yourself, preferably, I think. Yeah, and I think it's a little dangerous when we exclude one of these categories of foods, say one of the four food groups. Not that I really believe in the whole food pyramid or anything, but I like to say that just as kind of a, an explanation for where a kind of foods have been typically classified under. Yes, I don't think there's any one food group that we should avoid. There's really no historical basis for such an avoidance. Right, and I think we've seen advantages of all types of food groups. I know one uh, other advantage that uh, milk has, which we haven't touched upon yet, which I want to get to a little before we close out, is milk for babies and the advantages that it has of babies having real raw milk. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I'm a very strong, lifelong advocate for breastfeeding, so that's your first choice. But if you, for some reason, this isn't going to work for you, why? There's uh, a lot to be said for raw milk, and you can certainly find a safe source for your small child. And you'll notice a big difference in in health over heated and treated formula, just like Pottinger did with his cats. It makes a big difference. I think breast milk is one of the greatest arguments in favor of raw milk because we so vilify raw milk, yet if we look at what we recommend as the best thing for babies of breastfeeding, right there is a type of raw milk that we recommend. It's not a type of raw milk, but also it's an example of a type of saturated fat and cholesterol that, that we encourage. We never say, oh, well, breast milk, it needs to be pasteurized. It's too high in cholesterol, too high in saturated fat. <laughs> yes, you're making one of my big points for me. The, the breast milk is, is very high in cholesterol and saturated fat. Cholesterol is absolutely necessary for brain growth. Absolutely. So right there when we are so afraid of cholesterol and fat, we are really overlooking one of the biggest examples of cholesterol and fat that we pretty much recommend that every baby consumes. <laughs> so true. So true. Well, it sounds like we have a lot of similar beliefs and we promote a lot of the same things because the stuff that I've seen that you're going to be talking about in your presentation is stuff that I've been saying for years now, for a couple of years since a lot of this is still new to me, discovering Western price and traditional foods. But I'm on my way now to, uh, to saying a lot of these things too. Last year, year and a half, I've been making probably a lot of the same arguments that you have. Well, that's wonderful. I'm so glad to have had the opportunity to talk about this for your audience. Oh, and, and I'm glad too because there's going to be so many great guests at this upcoming conference. And I just want to say that some of the other speakers, which unfortunately I wasn't able to have my program, I think there are a lot of other ones that I would have loved to have. So it was a very difficult decision. But I think that to round it out, you really were the perfect one because I've just been so intrigued by this idea of having a backyard cow. It's something that I don't know a lot about. So it's a topic that I was really 
pleased to have this hour with to learn more about what's involved with it. Well, don't be scared of it. It's fun and easy. It is, and I'll be learning more about it after I'm done with the show. So we're just about out of time, but before we go, can you give people the website where they can find more information on what you do and your books? Well, my website is keepingafamilycow.com, and there's a link to Keeping a Family Cow Forum where lots of enthusiastic people will help with all your questions. And my book, Keeping a Family Cow, is just been uh, brought out by Chelsea Green Press and is available from them right now. All right. Well, it was really a pleasure having you on this show, and I'm just so pleased with everything you do. I admire all of your work. So thank you for coming on. And for those of you that are attending the Wise Traditions Conference, which starts this Friday, Joanne will be speaking on Saturday, and she's part of the alternative session in farming and gardening. And now for the desserts, how to live appropriately in the upcoming week. Of course, the big dessert this weekend is the Wise Traditions Conference in Atlanta. The event starts this Thursday with the Farm to Consumer Legal Defense Fund workshop and dinner. Tickets are still available. To register your spot at the conference, go to westonaprice.org. Also, for those of you in Washington State, if you haven't made it to the polling place yet, please go today and vote yes on I-522 to label GMOs. Then, for those ones that can't make it to the conference, there are some great events going on here in L.A. First, this Thursday, November 7th, at the Culture Club 101 in Pasadena, Real Food Devotee founder Monica Ford will be teaching a class on grain-free baking. The course will teach you how to make many of your favorite desserts grain-free, including banana nut bread, hush puppies, and coconut blondies. For more information and to register, go to cultureclub101.com. Finally, if you haven't seen the documentary Genetic Roulette, Jeffrey Smith's excellent film about the dangers of GMOs, you can view it for free up until Friday, November 8th at the website geneticroulettemovie.com. For a more detailed list of events going on in the Pasadena and Los Angeles area, check out the community calendar on the Weston A. Price Pasadena page at westonaprice.blogspot.com. That's all for this week. In two weeks, the appropriate omnivore returns as I interview C.J. Hunt, director of the documentary The Perfect Human Diet. For more information on my guests, as well as to listen to past episodes, visit my blog at appropriateomnivore.com. Thank you. Thank you.